Deep in the imagination, there's a crossroads, a space where curiosity and inspiration intersect and give birth to ideas. A space where music, science fiction, comic books, and pop culture inform the mind of what is and what could be. This is Jeff Boucher's Mind Space. In each episode, legendary journalist Jeff Boucher welcomes the biggest names in genre entertainment for an expansive dive into all things pop culture. Journey with Jeff as he explores the latest news and recommendations of the hottest releases across entertainment with his most trusted confidants. You are now entering deep space. Heavy Metal presents Jeff Boucher's Mind Space. Welcome to Mindspace. Uh, this is Jeff Boucher, and I'm here with Maya St. Clair and Garrett Nickel. And today, a little departure on Mindspace. We usually uh, go into genre stuff. We usually have science fiction, fantasy, comics uh, at the forefront. But today, something that's a little more apropos to the name of the show, um, we're going to be talking to Victoria Labam, who is the author of Risk Forward, Embrace the Unknown, and Unlock Your Hidden Genius which is a pretty nifty book, uh, an illustrated book about uh, finding success in your creativity and finding um, uh, creativity in your success, I suppose. And uh, so we're going to talk to her. And um, Maya, you, you read the book. I read the book. What would you think? It was very refreshing. It was cute. It was heartwarming. I really enjoyed it because I think on this show, we we have creators and due to that, we have a very interior perspective. Somebody who is trying to communicate their own interior subjective experience with the arts and with their creative process. But the perspective that Victoria takes in this book is a very kind of cross-dimensional wide look at cre creativity as a whole so she discusses creatives and like the blue man group that she's worked with actors directors um she really covers a broad swath of people and and yeah. she synthesizes it into easy to understand principles that anybody can apply uh a bit on her background so she comes from a theatrical background. She has a lot of training in pantomime even, and she's been in TV. So she conceived and produced the documentary Muppet Guys Talking, which surveys the whole creative career and creative processes of the Muppet Muppeteers. And um, she's transitioned into lots of public speaking. So she's consultant and she does a lot in oratory she's a member of the speaker hall of fame and she speaks to just countless companies about about these processes of creativity so her perspective lends a lot of breadth to mind space um it's very different from our normal kind of very granular look at certain works yeah absolutely and it's uh it's also Kind of news you can use kind of thing uh as far as all of us uh no matter what we do uh in life there's there's got to be creativity in in it somewhere uh and collaboration and this is a book that helps people uh kind of get their arms around that um victoria's also meant uh married to frank oz we should mention and frank oz 
who people know uh, for his amazing work uh, with the Buppets, Jim Henson, uh, and also he's the voice of Yoda and also uh, a film director of, of substantial success. So that's part of her creative life as well. But uh, I suppose we should just get right to the interview. So uh, here is our interview with Victoria Labam, and she's the author of Risk Forward, which came out in March. Victoria, welcome to Mindspace. Uh, this show has never quite lived up to its title as much as it will today, because uh, looking at your extraordinary new work, Risk Forward, uh, it feels like it's all about the mind space of the reader. Thank you. Well, I'm so pleased to be here, and I'm so happy to be talking about Mindspace in every way. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting book. When did Risk Forward come out? When did it hit the shelves? Uh, it was published officially March 30th, 2021. Okay. Uh, it's really extraordinary. I really like the look of it. And it's, it's uh, I, I wouldn't say elusive. It's a little uh, hard to explain to someone that doesn't have it in their hands. It's a kind of a book that's, uh, I, I'm, it's probably available on audio and uh, would be a good experience for people on audio. But it's also, uh, it's, a, it's a totem. It's something that you kind of need to see while you're reading, don't you think? I think so. Yeah, it's a highly visual book, a lot of images, a lot of surprises on the pages. It's full color. It's an experience. Yeah, that's terrific. And can you tell us a little bit about how you uh, you came came to the project? Uh, well, I, uh, like many people, was pulled in a lot of different directions along the way in my career and was always told, you know, you got to be clear. You got to have a plan. You got to have a goal. And there were times when I did, but there were a lot of times when I wasn't sure what was next. And we all have those phases. Um, and I found my way and I found my way uh, through a lot of uh, trial and error and decided that I wanted to write a book really about how we handle those periods of not knowing. Yeah. And I thought it was an important topic to address because it wasn't so often addressed. There are all these books about achievement, but this is an alternative approach to achievement. Yeah. And, and you know, it's, I think it's uh, um, it's interesting that I think when we think about people who are great successes or we think about people who've made great leaps in either intuition or intellect or deduction, come up with some great new uh, way of thinking, we think of it as kind of a pretty process. Or we think of it as uh, this is a person who had, uh, was on a straight line and, and got somewhere nobody else got, but neither of those things are really true. A lot of times it's very messy and a lot of times it's fraught with doubt. Yes. Uh, Yes. It's nice, it's nice to see that incorporated into the, the advice that you, you're helping people find. Yeah, I appreciate your calling that out because um, it is messy. Uh, and sometimes people do know that because you know, we, 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 we've seen that, but there's a lot of um, personal development which says, you know, never have a doubt in your mind. And, you know, and if you do, that's a bad sign. And yet I have spent time with top executives at some of the most well-known companies, uh, entrepreneurs who run big brands, um, Hollywood directors of, of great repute. And I can tell you across the board, whether they're scientists or students or consultants or creatives, like the best of the best, they go through moments of doubt. Yeah. And so I just wanted to call that out so that people don't feel wrong when they do have that. You don't want to hang out in that not knowing doubt for too long. But all I want to say is it's not necessarily a sign that you're off the mark. Yeah. You know, I, um, covering Hollywood for a number of years, uh, I, I think I empirically knew that film was the most collaborative art 
uh, and tele film, film and television just because of the sheer number of people. But I, I didn't understand that, how hard that is until I covered it and then started interviewing writers and directors and producers and, and everyone else involved in the process. Uh, this book would be, I think, especially valuable for people that are in that kind of collaborative environment uh, or like in a newsroom. I, I, I was in a newsroom for 21 years and uh, uh, some of the questions that you ask and some of the, the, uh, the points that you make really reminded me of what it was like to be in a room full of people that have different ideas, but a common goal uh, or hopefully common goal, hopefully right. common goal. I love that. I never thought of it with respect to a newsroom, but that's very interesting. Yeah. So um, when you were putting this together, where did you uh, where did you pull these things from directly? I mean, uh, obviously, your all your experiences that you've had, but uh, was there one or two things that led directly to taking on the project? Uh, was there a, an experience that you had, or is it, it was it really more of a comprehensive kind of index of the entire journey? Wow, that's a great question. Well, you know, I've been professionally speaking for 20 something years. I've done lots of workshops. I have online courses. I have taught tons of different intellectual property. I had handouts, articles, blogs. So over 20 years, more than 20 years, I developed a ton of intellectual property. And that was both uh, really helpful, but also a little overwhelming because then you're thinking, well, where do I begin? And the biggest mistake an author can make is wedging everything into one book. And so part of the discipline was really separating it out. And at one point I had so many ideas, you know, to your point, I mean, literally I say I built the book because I had pages all across my studio, you know, handouts, blogs, little notes. I used to make these four inch by four inch mini books mm -hmm. and all different sizes and, you know, bullet lists. And then I started dividing and I realized I really had three separate books here. Um, and so then I had piles and then it was assembling and then I dumped it all into a program. And, and so I could sort of see what I had and then started to weed out the duplicates or weed out things that were confusing. And over many, many, many months and, and hundreds of hours reduced it to what it is so that it would be crisp and clear. And as my friend Dave Goals, uh, who performs with the Muppets, said, it rings like a bell. It's pure. <laughs> oh, that's really great. That's really great. Yeah, there is. There is definitely a clarity to it, and and that's really refreshing. Um, I, we had we're lucky enough to have a guest a couple of weeks back. Um, we had Ed Zwick, the great filmmaker who did Glory and so many other wonderful films, Blood Diamond, um, and we were talking about something that's similar to this. Um, in my writing, I had found that uh, if I had a lot of great information, uh, the top of the story, in or in a book, if it was a long, longer piece. Uh, it felt almost like an ice cream cone on a sunny day. And I kept trying to put scoops on top. Uh, and the more scoops you got, I mean, it sure looked good. But then, you know, the sidewalk's going to end up with that ice cream. You know, yeah. it's all going to fall apart. Right. Uh, and it took me, um, I had, had, I was reading a, a, a storybook to uh, my niece uh, when I had a breakthrough of, look at the way this is written, because it's so elemental, the storybook. is so simplicity. It rings like a bell the words are so assured. And I realized that that's what I was missing in this project was that it was just, I was just throwing everything in because I was so excited about it. But really also at the root of it, I didn't know what I wanted to say. And then until I figured that out, it was just gonna be wandering in the desert. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I, I uh, 
I showed the project early on, not early on, but once I got a handle on it to some people I really respect. Mm -hmm. And then I had about 18 different early readers of different types. You know, I had my niece who was 19 at the time, and I had a top executive who was a male and a top executive who was a female. I had an entrepreneur and an artist and all types of, of populations, psychodynamics, if you will. And through that, I got feedback and people felt like this doesn't really go in the book and this seems a little confusing and this feels kind of wedged in and I, you know I, I would be found out i was like yeah i kind of wedged that in they're like yeah it doesn't really belong here oh you so, picked some good people you picked well, some good people a lot of people won't do that well it, it, it takes uh, it takes a little bit of courage because yeah. you know it's painful but i you know there were certain things i disagreed with but when there was enough of a consensus and i thought yeah yeah i think they're right I, I made the move. I pulled it out. I adjusted it. And there it is. Yeah. The, there's so many things in here. I could talk about them all day. Uh, um, but one of them I thought was really interesting was when you were talking about, uh, uh, and I hadn't really thought of it this way before, but you were talking about ideas that are near, just outside what this, this idea is. If you yeah. um, uh, interrupt me, if I'm not expressing it right, but my takeaway was like, if you have this bold idea or something that seems counter to the common way of doing things um, and you bring that idea and share it with a group of people that you're working with the danger sometimes is that the ideas that are near yours but outside that revolutionary arrowhead so to speak uh, those are the ones that can really kind of um, take something away from being special you know absolutely yeah and the the you, you have it exactly correct the idea in that section, and that section is called The V. And by the way, for anyone hearing this, uh, the book is very short, as you can attest to, Jeff, you can read the entire thing in less than 90 minutes. But it's the kind of book you go back to again and again, and you can read the book in any order. The chapters are on average anywhere from half a page to two pages. So people flip around and there are 35 chapters. The chapter you're talking about is called The V. And right. so for people listening, if you think of the V like a snowplow shape, but literally like a V, um, that is your vision. And then anything that's just a little bit outside, as the great writer, director, performer says, Frank Oz, it just <laughs> is so dangerous because it's just outside the V. And those are the, those are the tricky ones because you know, we tip a little bit. We're like, yeah, that, that's pretty good. Like if it's really bad, we know right away not to do it. If someone came into your studio and said, you know, let's paint it purple polka dots, you're not going to do that. But if someone right. says, let's, let's paint it, paint it like a, a kind of a light gray, you think, well, that's pretty good. And the next thing you know, it's a little darker gray and then a darker gray, and then it's got black trim. And suddenly your white studio is very different. Yeah, yeah, it's very well said. And, and I, as you're saying that, I'm walking through like an exact experience in my life where that happened. You know, I, I took a new job. These people hired me to do what I had done somewhere else and then proceeded to, to change it until uh, it wasn't what I'd done before. And I think that there's a, there's a, in, um, there's a sort of a, a thing that happens where people, I, they hired me to do something different. Uh, they hired me to be what they weren't. And then I got there and they proceeded to try to make me what they are. Um, oh. and, and I don't think it was conscious, but I could feel like it, it come in, do this because you're way over here, do that. And then as soon as you get there, it's they start changing your shape and trying to make you fit in. And you want to fit in because it's human nature to want to fit in. Um, but that's, it was really tricky and it didn't end well for me, you know? Uh, right. And I, 
that's an interesting thing. I, I can see that as you explain that B, that that's exactly what happens to me. Yeah, it happens in all kinds of ways. It happens in societies. It happens in relationships where people start to, you know, change you a little bit. You see this with friends who are in marriages that aren't that healthy and little by little, they're no longer themselves. Um, it happened with me. You know, I do a lot of keynotes uh, on stages and there was a client I had, a very big name client. And I went there and they asked to see the outline, which I really don't like, because then you know yeah. it's going to get my right in it. And I, I said, well, it's not the way I work and they insisted. So I showed it to them and they're like, well, can you take this out and move that there? And that was <laughs> the beginning of the end. And yeah. it just started getting eroded and eroded. And thank God it was finally one woman of the team of nine executives who were trying to micromanage my keynote. Too and she many. said, we hired Victoria because she knows what she's doing. Let's let her do what she does best. Yeah. And they backed off. But boy, it was tricky for a little while. Absolutely. And I think fans of film, uh, they can see this happen. Um, I think it's it's very noticeable. If you go to a big budget film and you wait till the third act and the film loses its mind in the mm -hmm. third act, because a lot of producers I've found, they either don't have the patience or interest to read the whole script, but they'll go right to the end and say, the third act needs more. And I don't <laughs> know what more is, but it needs more. And, and you end up getting something that's like a, it's like a collage of like, uh, four good ideas and five bad ones. Totally, exactly. Yeah, and you know, to use film is, is a great sample of this. It's, you know, I have a lot of friends who are in the, in the industry and, you know, the executives will say, well, can, can you change locations? You know, could it, could it be New York instead of Toronto? And, you know, these things seem subtle, but they're big. And then, you know, could we, could we make them a little younger? And then they cast someone who's a little not that part. And the next thing you know, and I know writers who've had their screenplays so doctored and so changed that they don't even want their name on it anymore because it doesn't represent their work. Yeah. And just, just think about how frustrating that must be. That's like, oh. a, it's like having a Frankenstein's monster version of your, whatever your, your child is. You know, like, oh, my it's God. Like a terrible feeling problem. Oh, I can't even imagine. Heartbreaking, really. And then... Um, the, the way that illustrations are used in the book are great uh, because they aren't uh, complex. They're not, uh, you know, when I say illustrations, the listener, uh, a lot of different things can pop in your head when I say that, but um, they are small and very endearing. Uh, uh, sort of, uh, it's like having um, Oompa Loompas guide you through Willy Wonka's factory. Uh, that, that's, there's a lot of different ways to do a, a book. Did you settle on that one pretty quick or is it part of the process? Oh, I love your questions. So <laughs> that character, and I call it a character, again, for anyone listening, uh, it's not like a cartoon character. Think more like it's a tiny little figure, a pen and ink figure that would be probably a, a third of an inch square uh, with little triangle arms and legs. And this is a character that I first drew in the early 1990s, and I trademarked it back in 1992 or three. And I've been drawing it now for 27 years. And it, I used to populate my handouts for business events and I would populate and I'd make little cards for friends or their babies. I made a little line of greeting cards. I just put them on mugs and plates and I a uh, little uh, apparel and I made a poster. So I had this, I had this. And I, um, at one point, originally this book had photographs in it because I'm a highly visual person is uh, you may have seen one of the reviews on Ebert, RogerEbert.com called the book very filmic. So I, I wanted it to be a visual experience. So I had photographs. And then my early readers who saw both the photographs in the book and also the little character said, you know, Victoria, these characters are, as you said, Jeff, so endearing. Uh, they're like little friends that take me through the book. They said, you know, most people have photographs and anyone can have photographs. 
but these characters are you. And so out the photographs came and the characters stayed in. Good call. Um, well, thanks. <laughs> thanks. And so, yeah, they're, they're fun and they allow me to kind of comment and they, they, they're full of whimsy and delights. So they add a levity to the whole process. Yeah, whimsy is the exact right word. That's exactly right. Uh, does, does the little guy have a name? I call them my little characters. They're, they're trademarked under little people. I mean, little, sorry, little works, but yeah, I call them little people or little characters. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Jeff might be good. Have you considered Jeff? Yeah, they're the little Jeffs. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, I don't know. The, the, the first thing popped in my head. Yeah, I, I should, <laughs> good one. I should have thought of that. And then you're, um, I, I should have mentioned you're in the Speaker's Hall of Fame. I mean, that's a fantastic, that's a fantastic honor. Uh, wow. How many, well, can you recall like early on, maybe uh, an experience that you're, a public speaking experience that uh, was really that formed you that was uh, uh, that gave you either a, a big fright or maybe a big a boost and helped you on the way to, to that hall of fame uh well actually when you asked that question the first thing that came into my mind and it's the one i will share sure. is when i was 10 uh -huh. and i was at my grade school and they had kind of a talent show for the whole lower school and I decided to do this really, really basic magic trick. I mean, it could not have been more basic. I had my dad's fedora, uh -huh. and you know, on the inside it had you know that silk that's normally yeah. uh, lines the interior, yeah. right? And so uh -huh. I borrowed one of my mother's silk scarves that had a same, similar color, and underneath it I put like all of her other colored scarves, and then I sort of showed it to the audience, like, look, nothing here, nothing here, just a hat. And then I did a little abracadabra move and I flipped it over and out. I started to pull the string of scarves tied end to end. And it was this full color, you know, extravaganza that emerged like this tale of color. And the audience, you know, thought it was brilliant. Either they were humoring me or I actually did a pretty good job. But I remember standing on that tiny stage, you know, in front of the few hundred of, of teachers and parents and students and the feeling of of taking the audience on a journey like wow i surprised them i did something that made them go aha and i like that feeling i was like this is cool like it's like conducting an orchestra when you have an audience and you take them through a journey and that was a a, a seminal moment for me yeah i can bet that's uh that seems very uh that'd be very very reassuring and, and give you a lot of confidence especially at that age you yeah know, exactly, not an exactly. Age not an age defined by confidence. No. Uh, so that's terrific. I, I was uh, the host of my high school talent show in my senior year, and it it was the the it demarked the point when I became a ham. I really did. I, I totally really do like crowds and like any people people cheering. I, I'm all for it. Uh, probably a little too much, actually. Oh, I don't about that. Yeah, I gotta rein that in a little bit. But um, that's so great. Uh, where did you grow up? I actually grew up in Manhattan, you know, oh, people say, wow, really? No one grows up in Manhattan. I thought like people just moved there. And I always say, well, what do you think those kids on the street are? They're not like props. They're like, <laughs> they live here. Yeah. Also that was like me. Eloise too, though. Like Exactly. exactly. That's fantastic. I hope my daughter owns that hotel. She would have told you when she was five, you, you just don't know it. You know, she's like, oh yes, I own that hotel. Well, oh, there you go. Let's talk about visualization. There she is. She, she probably will then. Well, it would have really helped with our lodging costs back in the day <laughs> if I, if we had actually been able to figure that out, but it didn't really work out. Um, and then uh, that's great about the photos that you did go with photos because that, that's almost an example of exactly what you're talking about in your book. I mean, that's almost a precise example of it's near your V right. of the idea, but it's not it's not the vision. 
Yeah, and that that actually is a really tricky point because my original vision was photographs. Like I had kind of oh. wanted to do the book, right? And so I had both in there, but I, I was sort of between the two and I did feel it was an odd mix. I'm all for mixed media, but this was a little bit of an odd mix because photographs with the pen and ink, you know, water, watercolor characters, it's not really a fit. So I yeah. did sense, and I would go to people, I was like, is it weird to have both? And I, I could feel inside, speaking of the book, there's a whole chapter on indecision. And yeah. when you have indecision, it's worth honoring because there's wisdom in the indecision. And so in my indecision of like, do they go together? I could sense, and even if someone said it's fine, I knew like there was something niggling that uh, it's not quite right. And when so many of the readers, the early readers of that 18 said, yeah, these characters are so delightful and photographs are okay, but not as great, then that kind of made a decision for me. Yeah. And so I guess the, the delicate dance there um, that you're talking about is, is to find, uh, to follow your, your, your bold sense of things when you feel it to be true, but to not let, uh, you know, near ideas or, or uh, you know, kind of uh, collaboration, like pull you off of it. It's, that's a, a delicate thing to know when, when your doubt is, is genuine and when your doubt is just the noise of, uh, of a good idea being hatched. Exactly, yeah. And sometimes we need time to have it sit with us. Like at first we might go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we sleep on it and a week later it's still bothering us. I think time is a great telltale sign of what's really happening. Yeah. And getting back to collaboration, because I'm sort of fascinated by it. Um, I, I, I really love it. Uh, and I get a lot of energy off of people I, uh, when I work with people and get ideas. And um, the newsroom for me, I started at the LA Times newsroom when I was 21. And I worked there until I was 42. So it's half of my life. And uh, it was just, you know, the great honor of my life uh, to work there with those people. And, and, and especially at a young age to learn so much. And I realized what I was doing often, the process I had is I would write something and I would walk around and I would audition it for all these people who were much smarter than me, much older than me, much more experienced than me, uh, much more talented than me in some cases, not all. Uh, and uh, it's that process, I dearly miss it. And in solitary uh, existence, especially in the pandemic, um, you know, I can, I'll just doubt everything. I doubt everything I do because I don't have that reassurance of the, yeah. the collective right. uh, or the energy that to kind of someone say, wow, that's good, keep going. You know, I don't yes. have that. And I, and uh, um, how, I, tell me a little bit about what you found about collaboration and some of those types of things, uh, you know, yeah. is, uh, how to hold on to that kind of thing. Right, well, you know, I'm, I'm very, very interested in this theme as well. And in fact, to that end, you probably know this, I uh, conceived and co-produced a documentary film about the culture of the Muppets. Yes. Because I noticed a type of collaboration, uh, a type of risk-taking, a type of, sort of um, ribbing each other and listening. So they would kind of jab at each other, but then really lovingly listen. And so it was this unusual mix of a style of, of interaction that I had never witnessed in the corporate world, in the entrepreneur world, wow. even in the artist world. And I, I happened to have been around a bunch of the early Muppet performers. And I said, we should record this conversation. That's true. Because in that collaboration, so much comes out. And, you know, Pixar has what they call the brain trust, right? You know that. Mm -hmm. And I think there's great value there. I think, of course, it always depends on the quality of the people. 
right? Because it raises our game. So I'm always big on who you pick for that collaboration because they do have a big influence and they can steer you off course if it's the wrong collection. That's right. And even if it's, um, even if they're you, well, that's right. And if it, what makes them the right group can be different things because you can be with the people that are the smartest and talent, most talented people, but if they aren't giving or if they are harsh or if they, they find uh, satisfaction in, in seeing other people stumble or you know they could that could be dangerous you know yeah completely completely yeah so choose wisely you know and some people uh, find that even uh, their their partner in life is not necessarily the best collaborator because sometimes they want to protect you but their sense of protection is off the mark so um, right yeah we have to we have to think carefully like when i i have a, a side not a side business a whole business in coaching people with their presentations and i always say like when i'm working with the clients like don't show this to your spouse tonight because they'll look at you and they'll like raise an eyebrow and go, I don't know. And it's not formed yet. Like, don't show it yet because you might get scared and demoralized, you know, and feel like I'm um, deflated. So be careful. And I say this in the book, you know, early ideas can sometimes look odd. And so you don't want to necessarily show those peculiar misshapen ideas too soon. That's right. That's right. And, and, and um, in our house, we have a rule that the first time someone expresses an idea, you don't criticize it and you don't, uh, you don't even amend it. Uh, the first time we just listened uh, because sometimes it's the, uh, those, you know, like, as you say, when, when babies first come out, they don't look right. Like, you know, like, you know, but you like, just give it some time. It'll probably be okay. Uh, you know, there's, there's something really uh, debilitating or, or demoralizing about uh, expressing an idea. And the first thing someone says is, yeah, but, or no, 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 it's this, you know, the no, no, no. Right. Uh, you know, yeah, we, we've forbidden that in our house. A hundred percent. Well, that is such a great rule. I, I love that you do that. And uh, two things I want to add. One is because I'm the youngest of four kids, uh -huh. I'm, I'm very sensitive to that because as a kid, you know, I would share an idea and immediately my three older siblings would have comments and critique about it or make fun of me. Uh, so I became very sensitive to protecting the voice, if you will. Mm -hmm. But secondarily, I've also found that even well-meaning people, even if it's not a critique, it's meant to be a helpful comment, can really take you off course. So for example, I have a client, uh, she was in a, a small group event and she shared this new idea. And immediately the other people there said, oh my gosh, so cool. Have you read the book by XYZ? And do you know so-and-so who does a similar thing? And I was leading the room and I said, you know, we got to hold on here because already she, this woman's trying to be a good collaborator. So she's starting to write down ideas like, oh, I should read that book and I should check out right. this other person, but it's already tilting her V. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it, if it's the idea is new, she may not even have enough of a foothold to keep the V straight. So now she's already forgetting what her original vision is because she's going to go look at that book and look at that other person's project. So I, I have a rule in my workshops, a little similar to your families, where I say the only comment you can share when someone delivers or you know reveals an idea is to say, cool. That's all. That's all you have to say. And, and it's amazingly empowering. Like when you're in a room and 12 people or five people around you, whether Zoom or live, say, cool. Mm -hmm. It's pretty interesting what happens. It really is. Wow, that's, that's uh, there's also, the, as you say that, uh, if someone says, oh, read this book, or it reminds me of this, I've had that happen, and I lose steam because I'm thinking, oh, well, this is already, I thought this was a good idea, this is already out there. Because if you go and look at that book, it's a finished product, and you'll be, oh, mine's not like this. Yeah. Um, 
and that, and that can also kind of squelch things, you know, because, <clears throat> excuse me, um, I remember when uh, Analyze This came out, the movie Analyze This, uh, and I wrote about it. And then within a month of that, I saw a press release for a new TV show about a, a, a mobster that goes to a, an analyst and it's called The Sopranos. And I said, well, I've already seen this, you know, like, and if, if I had been in the room when someone pitched it, I would say, look, somebody's already done this, you know, let's, and it was the perfect example of not only is there room for two, but the second one might end up being a lot more important to you in the long run. Um, it made me actually more respectful, less likely to kind of harsh on people if, if I felt like something sounded familiar. Oh, that is such a great story. And what a great example. Yeah. And he, they did two Analyze This movies, which was kind of funny because I, I, I then thought, well, now no one will remember Analyze This and then they got a sequel. So I proceeded <laughs> to be wrong as many ways as possible about that. <laughs> but you have um, a good story to tell. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And then, uh, you know, since the book came out in March, uh, I'm just curious, uh, and it's been lived in the world and, and people have experienced it and taken it into their own lives. Uh, I'm sure some of them come back to you with emotional reactions or with uh, a more specific kind of anecdotes. Can you give us a sense of that kind of reaction you've gotten back from the world? Yeah, I love that question. I, I mean, people, it's, it's been across the board, which is so exciting. I mean, the journey of the book, uh, Risk Forward is a risk forward. That's the title and that's the experience. You know, people are flipping the pages and they feel like they're going through something. They don't know what's happening next because every page is a surprise as we've described. You know, they don't know and they flip and they're, oh, look at this. And so people have found themselves sort of towards the end crying and then laughing and feeling free. So people, a lot of people are literally posting pictures of them hugging the book, oh. uh, literally, because it feels like a guide and a friend. They say it feels like a hug to them, that it's sort of an embracing book. Yeah. Uh, it makes them feel like they have permission, that they feel liberated. One guy said it feels like he'd been living his life with a seatbelt on and it just got taken off. Wow. Um, yeah, I've had students who were just out of college saying every college grad should read this. Uh, Dickie Smothers, the famous Dickie Smothers of the Smothers Brothers sent me a text. He's in his 80s. He said, this is the perfect book for me at this phase of my life. Um, I had a financial advisor who read it and there's a reference in one point to a financial advisor client of mine. And he said, can you come and do a workshop for the financial advisory team at Morgan Stanley? Um, then I had another woman who runs a, fairly significant uh, business in health. I won't reveal her, but she, um, she had gotten to a place with this business where she felt a little burnt and she wanted to redirect it, uh, but she wasn't sure what was next and what was the best new business model. And she was about to outsource her vision. And she mm. got to the page that says, don't outsource your vision. And she thought, wait a second, I can figure this out. It's my business. And she sat with it and she, you know, as it says early in Risk Forward, embrace the fog. She's like, all right, I don't know, but that's okay that I don't know. I'll figure this out. She went through the book and she re-imagined uh, her whole business. She's pivoting in a whole new direction. And I said to her, what do you think that saved you? Like, I know uh, I won't publicize this. I won't reveal your name, but financially or time-wise, she said, I would venture it probably saved us $5 million. Wow. Yeah. By not going in the wrong direction. And that, so we've got, you know, people crying, people saving money, people feeling liberated. So yeah. it's really across the board and so, so fulfilling. That's terrific. You know, it, it's, it is, uh, I know, I, I did think myself of two people that I thought would be perfect for this book. And, and it's, it's very revealing that how different they are. One is my daughter who is starting at NYU in the fall. Um, 
And so uh, and if anybody that's listening has a couple of extra suitcases of cash, now would be a good time to send it. Uh, I'd really appreciate that. Uh, and the other person is my good friend, Carl, uh, who is uh, doing a startup right now. And he's doing nothing less than trying to, to uh, replace Facebook, essentially, uh, but just for musicians, you know, try to create like a, a protected area, uh, social media and resource that's nonprofit. Uh, and, uh, and he, I, I was going to probably get a copy for him right away because he's right in the middle of it. Uh, but I mean, those two are two people that are doing very different things, different stations in life. I mean, he's a form, he's a veteran who, you know, uh, Harvard graduate. Um, and, uh, and my daughter's, uh, wonderful in every way, but he's embarking on this brand new journey, you know? So, uh, I guess that's pretty revealing that it's, uh, it seemed like it would be applicable to two very different folks for me. Yeah. Well, I'm thrilled to hear that Jeff. And, and, uh, that's, that was my intent. I really uh, wanted it to be a book that spoke to people at different ages and at different phases and the vision for the book, which seems to be happening now is it's the kind of thing people return to. Uh, you know, and I have a few people, it's been out a month, but a few people got an early copy, of course, yeah. and they said they, they're on their third read through it because they're going through something else. And as I say, and to clarify, you know, the title is Risk Forward, but it's right. not a risk forward in like one time in your life. I say we go through it in a matter of minutes, like what blog post or should I speak up in this conversation that those moments of uh, in between, it could happen in the course of a week, like you're trying to figure out a project. It could happen in the course of a few months as you're figuring out the pivot of your business or some startup like your friend Carl. So it happens in different cycles, you know, minutes, weeks, months. And so it's something that you can sort of go back to and reference as a guide for those moments. And that, that is uh, my hope and my vision. There is one line in it that really kind of spoke to me because it's, uh, it, it seemed, you know, sometimes when you re read something, it's, it seems like it's almost spooky on point uh, kind of thing. And um, you had a line in about, you know, don't, uh, um, I can't quote it because I, I, I just read it the other day, but it, I think it was, uh, you know, to don't, it's okay to go back to something that you've, you've put aside or something from the past or don't be afraid. It, something's not diminished just because it's languished for a while or it's because it's right. been hibernation. Yeah, um, yeah. That is, um, there's a section of the book called Just Because. That's right. And there are six Just Because statements and the one that you're referring to is just because you haven't worked on it in a while doesn't mean you're not meant to do it. Exactly. That's it. And sometimes, and it, you know, go ahead. I'm curious to hear your experience of that. Oh, uh, well, for me, it was, um, I, uh, I was raised, the woman that raised me, I was raised by my grandfather's sister, uh, primarily. And, uh, she, uh, as a kid, uh, when I was going to bed, she would read me stories, um, and uh, I always had to make up the last page. And uh, I started to like my endings better, uh, you know? And I think that's when I became a writer. You know, I mean, she, that, that invented that moment, you know, for me. Um, and so I wanted to write about her and she, she would tell me these stories. She was a wonderful storyteller, just a natural storyteller. And as a child, she would tell me these stories about growing up uh, in Daytona, Florida. And she was the daughter of a bootlegger. Uh, and uh, all the stories about you know, running rum from Bimini and how they did it. And, and, um, and I always, uh, when I was in college, I, I, I sat down, I recorded an interview with her. I interviewed for, for like three hours about all that. And I still have those tapes. And I, and I always wanted to go back to them and I didn't. And then it became a thing where when I, I would look at them, 
I saw uh, disappointment or failure. I saw that something I didn't do, something I failed to do, you know. And then I, I you know, recently I, I kind of saw it a different way. I said, you know, no, this is just a, this is me. I created a resource for myself. This is a Valentine from the past that I have this voice here ready for me to listen to. I haven't been able to listen to it since she, she passed away. Um, and uh, the fact that I had done it uh, kind of was a weight on it. And, and just recently I was able, like within a week ago, I was able to kind of pull them out and put them on the table and say, no, I'm gonna to listen to them. And they don't represent a weight that's pulling the idea down in the water there. They're just, um, it's like a, a, it was an investment that's come, come mature now. And, and maybe I'm a better writer now. Maybe I'm, this is the time that I'm supposed to do that. I love that. I love that. That's such a beautiful example because it's loaded the way so many of these things are. It's got emotion to it. It feels like a big project. Uh, it's a little outside of what you've been doing. So now you wonder if you should do it. And then we feel, as you said, you know, disappointment and failure whenever we open that file or open that drawer or that closet. And we think, boy, I'm so you know, missing the mark here. What is my problem? Instead of recognizing that you know, maybe that's its path. Yeah. You know? uh, and I have, we all have tons of projects. And I, I said this in a, a Q&A I did about our film, Muppet Guys Talking. And that itself was a project that went on the back burner. We filmed in 2012. Oh, wow. And it didn't get released until 2017 because it was, it was on hard drives for weeks and months. And I was working on my keynotes and my husband had other films. And, you know, we'd come back to it for a weekend here. And there was a point when I started thinking, you know, maybe it's not meant to be. Yeah. But this is that point of that statement, just because you haven't worked on it in a while doesn't mean you're not meant to do it. And so I took to the, I looked at the audience and I said, look, whatever's in your closet or in your drawer, you know, it's okay. It's just on the back burner. Yeah. So pull it out when you're ready. Yeah. It's so funny how we can kind of uh, uh, just, you know, wrap ideas or, or projects up in, in all this emotional stuff. You know, the fact that I couldn't even barely look at the tapes for a long time. I mean, uh, that's just a really interesting process of the human heart. You know? Completely. Yeah. So you, um, if I remember, you got married in 2011. Uh, Frank Oz, the wonderful, just icon, uh, does so many great things as a filmmaker, uh, obviously done amazing things, uh, bringing characters to life, as we all know. Um, was that documentary, that, that, that was pretty early on in your marriage, is, is that you guys were collaborating on that, so? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we, we met in 20, 2008. Okay, and, so, uh, and then, um, that's really great. Uh, I haven't seen that yet, uh, the documentary. Uh, and it's really terrific that you guys have found a way to uh, reconnect with it. Yeah, yeah, it, uh, it's really lovely. And it's really partly, it's something the fans of the Muppets love, but it really more than that was meant to be for, as I said, leaders, parents, entrepreneurs, anyone who wants to create a great team or work in a collaborative, creative environment and create innovative work. Uh, it's, it's fantastic. And in fact, Frank and I did an interview together about Risk Forward. So he interviewed me about the book because so often I would interview him for different projects, including the film. Uh, oh so this time we turned the tables and he interviewed me. Uh, and that's, you can find that online or just, you know, find us at the riskforward.com site and we can get you um, the way to get that. That's fantastic. And then have, uh, uh, do you think that you'll see 
do you think you'll return to uh, risk forward in, an, in any other ways? Do you, do you see a second volume or do you see a, a collection of how it influenced people or anything like that in your future? Oh, gosh, I like the collection of how it influenced people. Well, we have all kinds of ideas. I mean, one, someone said I could do a series uh, like a Netflix, someone else suggested, like it could be a chicken soup for the soul. So there's the risk board for, you know, artists and the risk board for leaders and the risk board for parents, you know, different sectors of the world and society. Um, we have a community online of anyone who's read the book can join our private Facebook group. So we have an unbelievably vibrant group of creatives. And what I love about it is that it's not competitive. Like if everyone's in a group where your goal is to reach a certain target of followers or money or a certain number of projects, everyone's looking at each other, comparing and despairing. But in yeah. this, like everyone's on their own risk forward path. So it's very free. We have that. We're going to have a, a, an online, what we're calling a light touch course, because it's not like a heavy burden. Like the book is very light, very free. And so we're going to do a very light touch course. And I have keynotes. So it's expanding in all kinds of ways. I'm here to create what's needed to help people feel liberated and go out there and take their best ideas and express them in their own original way. That's fantastic. Well, I tell you, as a, as a, uh, a fan of the work and as uh, uh, someone that really kind of has, uh, I really found that it resonates, uh, I would love to see a wrist forward, put an ED on that first word and, and tell us some of the some of the ways that people used it and some of the, the success stories. I, I'd buy that as a second book if if there was a, a page or two for each person like kind of talking about how they put it in application because I think it's fascinating. I love that. Well, that's a great idea. I mean, we have some of the stories in the book, as you know, yeah. uh, and, but I'm yeah. going gonna, I'm gonna to put a little pin in that and remember it came from Jeff. So thank you <laughs> for that idea. Uh, from me to you, just if, uh, as, uh, if, uh, if I actually pull those tapes out that are sitting here. If I actually use them and, and uh, do a book, uh, I will owe you a big one because it's, uh, <laughs> it definitely is part of the inspiration to do that. So, uh, but I can't tell you what a treat it is to have you on the show today. And, and uh, uh, we'd love to have you back sometime and maybe uh, hear more about the adventures and creativity that you have with Risk Forward. Well, uh, it's absolutely a pleasure. I love talking with you. You ask such fantastic questions. Uh, and you're such a wonderfully warm human being. I can feel it coming through the lens. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Fantastic. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, Victoria, best of luck to you. And, and folks, the book's called Risk Forward. And uh, you heard about it here on Mindspace, but you'll hear about it a lot of other places as well. So that was Victoria LeBaum. You just listened to her talking with Jeff Boucher about creativity on Mindspace. And you can check out her book, Risk Forward. Uh, where books are sold. We really enjoyed it. And as mentioned, there's a certain question that comes up in the book. It's She calls it the deserted island question, and we're not going to spoil it for you. But it got me thinking about the whole concept of deserted island questions, because I feel like every icebreaker that you're at has some form of a deserted island question. What book would you take if you could only take one book to a deserted island, what record would you take or what three records or you know, what person in your life or what celebrity would you wanna be stranded with? Um, so we could either, I was thinking, ask these deserted island questions of ourselves or we could just talk about the concept of a deserted island question, why it's so common and why it's such a go-to 
thing that we have in conversation. Jeff, have you ever asked interviewees any deserted island questions? No, I really haven't. Although I, I probably just not use the that setup, but I probably have asked something similar to it. But uh, yeah, they are. I guess they they are so they distill it so well to uh, you know essentialness. I guess that that's what that the questions strive for. And uh, I, no, I don't think I've ever asked anybody that. I'm not sure. I've I've thought about. I've been asked. You know what albums? You know that's the one I remember. Is like what albums would you take? Um, and or if, if if one artist you could only take one artist uh and it's tough it's kind of tough you know like uh a lot of people assumed i would say springsteen but actually i if it's a desert island i'd probably take bob marley because it just fits the it's got such a wide range if you had the complete works of bob marley that's also quite a bit of music and it's so uh, so effortlessly uh buoyant uh, you know, that it would help me, I think, on a desert island. So I would go with the Marley, and I would probably hope that it came with some weed also, you know, mm -hmm. uh, just inside of it, but I don't know if that would happen. Uh, for the book, I would probably take, like, an essential survival guide. You know, like, that seems like the obvious answer is that something that would help me survive. What uh, What about you guys? What, what book would you take, mine? Oh, well, I don't know. I mean, the deserted island is just tied up with I think the first deserted island work was like Robinson Crusoe. I might take that because not only do you get the kind of um, journalistic survival guide, but you also get lots of angst. Yeah, yeah. It is, it is very emotional. Robinson Crusoe really goes through it. So I feel like, I'm not sure if it would be healthy to take that emotionally, but I think it would help me process all the emotions that go with being stranded on a desert island. Sure. I would take the movie Castaway, but then I would have no electricity and no Blu-ray player. So I don't really know. I would probably use it to just open like clams or something. Yeah. Break the DVD like a knife. Yeah, use the, the Blu-ray as a knife or something like you that. You could well, use it to signal. CDs and DVDs are so reflective. Yeah. I like that. Maybe use well, yeah, you, you could like probably start, start fire. fire. You could probably start fire probably start fire what about you garrett do you have any uh desert island um i don't know i was thinking about that i was like desert island deserted island whatever um you'd want i was thinking escapism yeah so uh i was saying like on a ready player one or something like that where it's just all the pop culture references so you have everything there or uh something i don't know but albums i think is a much tougher question albums are tough. I don't know what to pick. I would pick, I'd want to pick like a classic rock and modern rock and like a country album, I think. Yeah. Box but, sets, so I guess, too. I mean, if you're going like, you know, if you want completionism or greatest hits, which I usually don't like greatest hits albums, but like if you're on a desert island then, or a deserted yeah. island, then you definitely, you know, probably want to, um, you don't want any filler tracks, you know, like you don't want to listen to yeah. the bad songs like, oh God, I gotta skip song six every day for the rest of my life, you know, like that's, it's kind of a weight, you know, you start noticing flaws more than, than, yeah. you know, uh, than the, the, the upsides. Oh, I, I figured out the country album I'd take. It'd be uh, uh, Jerry Jeff Walker, oh. uh, Live at Luchenbach, Viva Terlingua. I, yes, that's an outstanding, outstanding. Yeah. And dangerous, I like that. It's yeah. a dangerous answer, I like that. Maya, you had a, a better answer for the book before. I, I thought the first answer you had was fantastic. Do you? Uh, oh, that 
Yeah, the kind of artsy reissue of Fahrenheit 451, where they make the spine into rough kind of match paper, and there's a little matchbook that you can pull out. That would be handy. I love um, that. I'm sort of second guessing it now because I feel like they're after you use those matches, that's pretty much the utility is gone from that book. So I think that your standard survival guide would be more applicable and more enduring in terms of the use it would offer on a desert island. But then that's also being practical. I mean, I think that maybe another point of the desert island question is to get you to try to think beyond that. Yeah, yeah. Um, at least when it <laughs> relates to art. Yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting that it's such a kind of practical, desperate scenario can tell you a lot about a person's artistic tastes rather than <laughs> rather than uh how game they actually would be to survive in the wild. It's like that's not the point, is it? <laughs> Yeah, no, yeah, it's, it's, I guess it's, it, it is. And then the celebrity thing is interesting. I don't remember that being a question before. Like, what celebrity would you take? I, I would, I would, I would, Bear Grylls, say, right? what's that? Yeah. Bear Grylls, Grylls, Bear, the, yeah, yeah. I would think Bear Grylls and Charlize Theron would be the, it would come down to the two. But if it, and if I took both, I would just assume that I would never see them again. Like they would be off on the other side of the island. So I would be, saying, oh, that was a bad call. <laughs> Um, yeah and then we were also talking about the kind of recent paucity of deserted island uh, set fiction or media that we see in the world I think the last one we could think of was maybe Lost Um, Garrett I'm not sure if you were a kid did you ever watch Flight 29 Down I was a kid but I did not watch that oh okay Uh, (laughs) what is that I haven't heard of it. It was, it was, I think, I'm not sure what channel it was on, but it was, it was a show about like kids being stuck on a, on a desert island. Oh, wow. Um, It was written by DJ McHale, who's like a sci-fi entertainment author who went on to write the Pendragon series. So. Yeah, I don't know that one. Uh, There's a Simpsons episode based on the uh, Lord of the Flies. uh, I think it's called like Das Bus or something is the Simpsons episode, but they all get, their bus goes over a bridge or something, lands in the ocean, they wind up on a deserted island. But uh, I remember watching that when I was a kid. And then in like high school, I had a film as literature class. And uh, we were reading, well, no. So the, the teacher that taught that also taught like a regular lit class. And he was mentioning to us how they were looking over Lord of the Flies and we might watch the movie that they made in like the 60s or something. And I said something about the Simpsons episodes. We ended up watching both. And that was okay. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, yeah, I guess Castaway would be like the last like new big kind of uh, survival uh, desert island. And, and I love the way, you know, and that was, you know, Bob Zemeckis did that one. And, and it was driven by, you know, the idea of how you could film it, you know, over such a long period of time. You know, I mean, Tom Hanks filmed that over many, many years, you know, kind of um to uh give it that sense that time is really passing and it's really really effective um an interesting product placement for fedex you know i don't know what what they gained by having uh, such a terrible aviation crisis with their plane uh but uh, i guess they delivered them there so i guess maybe that's the uh, the, the funny part 
but uh, yeah, I don't, I can't think of too many. There recently there was things like the the Predators, the the Predator uh, sequel, but that really feels more like Ten Little Indians, um, mm. more than a survival kind of thing. So, yeah, I don't know. That's the desert islands. I mean, I think there is also like an element of escapism. Some part of us will always want to go to a desert island. Uh, probably because we've we've never endured that for ourselves, so we can romanticize it. Like that scene in Pirates of the Caribbean where Jack and what is Kira Knightley's character's name? Rose? Elizabeth. No, that's Titanic. Elizabeth. Elizabeth. (laughs) But where they get marooned and there's he finds the rum and they have a giant rum bonfire. Like I think that's what lots of people crave deep inside. You know, the Jimmy Buffett experience and just being able to escape your work and having a good excuse for it. So I think it's definitely like escape work, escape your daily life, escape technology for a little bit, but it's like yeah. just go camping. And yeah. <laughs> and then there's the the romantic version of it, like Blue Lagoon, you know, um, or which is like Lord of the Flies, but without all the other kids, I guess. You know? mm. um, there's a, a new movie that I think just came out with um Oh, who was it? Was it Francis McDermott? No, it, but it was uh, someone like living on her own. Oh no, it was the girl, the wife from uh, House of Cards, um, where she like lives in a cabin all by herself or something. Oh, Robin. Out in the middle of the woods and it's self, completely self-sustaining. And like Robin Someone Wright? listening knows it and they're just like screaming it at their phone. Oh, uh, <laughs> I'm not sure. Land, yeah. It's, uh, so Robin Wright, uh, it was her directorial debut. I guess it just came out, but it was filmed in 2019. But it's a lawyer who retreats in grief to the Shoshone National Forest in Wyoming. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. That's not, that's landlocked deserted island. Hmm. Well, you know, um, I'm only three hours away from Gilligan's Island, according to uh, the beginning of that show. You know, I just have to go down to the marina and I just have to figure out which way to go for three hours. But the thing <laughs> I always loved about that show was that just there, the awesome ingenuity and, and also the the real diversity of headhunters that are available uh, in the world. You know, I didn't know that there were so many cannibals until I watched Gilligan's Island. And they're all on one island, right? They all end up there uh, as do lookalikes. You know, like every single person in the world that looked like Skipper ends up on that island. Everybody looks like Gilligan ends up on that island. And uh, boy, it's good times. It's really good times. <laughs> so I guess. Uh, the book is called Risk Forward, and uh, no man is an island, uh, but if they were, they would need to have some uh, sailing directions, and this is the navigation for life. Mm-hmm.